Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. All right, what would you say is the most popular verse in the Bible? John 3.16, we, we all in agreement there? I think so, right? No, no uh, dissenting voices on that. So all in agreement, John 3.16, the most popular verse in the Bible. Here's a tougher question. That, that was just the layup, get you guys you know, warmed up here tonight. What is the most popular Bible verse according to the Bible? Here's what I mean. We quote scripture sometimes, like John 3.16. We just mentioned, right? We quote John 3.16. But sometimes the Bible writers quote previous Bible writers. So what is the most popular verse in scripture according to the Bible writers? Which verse do they quote within the Bible more than any other? It is not. Good guess, though. Some of you are looking at me like, I've never even thought of this before. <laughs> it's okay. I grew up in church my whole life. I never even uh, heard this until about a year ago. <laughs> right? Yeah. No? Oh, that is a really good guess. That is a good verse. But actually, it's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So we're going to be on the most popular, unpopular verse in the Bible. It's popular to the Bible writers, unpopular to us. Because I'm guessing, even though more Bible writers quoted this verse than any other verse, I'm guessing you've never heard a sermon preached on this verse before. As you're turning there, I want to share an experience uh, with you that I had a few years back. Uh, where, where I went to college, there was not much to do at all. Uh, it, was a, it was a small town. And when I say small town, it was literally one square mile. Like, it, it was a box. That's all there was, was one square mile. Uh, so naturally, I tried to get off campus as much as I possibly could, find other things to do, uh, which was still hard in that area. There were more sheep than people, <laughs> farmland. Um, but one day in my junior year, I was hanging out with one of my buddies, and as the custom was, we were talking about the other students that were at the school, and uh, if I'm being honest, making fun of many of the freshmen and the other people that were there. Uh, I'm not saying it was right, just saying that's what we were doing. And my friends started making fun of, we were talking about some different people, and they started making fun of this one girl. Um, and he was mentioning kind of a stereotype that she had around the campus. But what my friend didn't realize is that I was actually really good friends with that girl. And because I had taken the time to get to know her, and no, this was not Jana, for those of you who are thinking that, uh, for, because I had taken the time to get to know her, I realized that she didn't match that stereotype. And I started thinking, if my friend could be wrong in how he was talking about her, could we have been wrong in the way that we were thinking about all those other people we were making fun of and had never taken the time to get to know? 
I think one of the most painful experiences a human being can go through is to be misrepresented and then watch other people accept that without asking them how much of it is true. Amen. And surely none of you have ever experienced that, right? <laughs> we all like to think we're great judges of character and it's all the other people who just, they're, they're no good at it, but I, I know what I'm talking about. I, I can tell if someone's good or not. But if they can get it wrong, can't we sometimes too? It hurts when a human is misjudged or misrepresented. But this is not something solely a problem for humans. Did you realize that happens to God, too? As long as humanity has existed, there have been ideas of what God is. Some that are good, helpful. Some that are, well, not so good and not so helpful. And I'm not just talking about the Christian idea versus the Buddhist idea or... uh, cosmic humanist or atheist. or I'm talking about within Christianity. Within Christianity, good people often misrepresent God uh, with descriptions that come more from tradition, sometimes cartoons, uh, often the Middle Ages, than the Bible itself. And so that's why I believe that this passage that we are in tonight, Exodus 34, is so important because it is God describing himself in his own words. If you want to get to know someone, the best way to go about doing that is not to snoop around their social media page. It's not to go to your one friend who can dig up dirt on anybody and ask what they know about this person. You go and you get to know them yourself. And you see how do they present themselves? What are they actually like? Not what do other people say about them, but what are they actually like? And this passage is God's doing just that. So our story tonight takes place on Mount Sinai. Back in Genesis, God had offered humanity the opportunity to rule alongside him and turn the world into paradise. But instead, our ancestors chose to define good and evil on their own terms, just like you and I do so often (laughs) as well. So God allowed them to make that choice, but he never gave up on trying to get us back. So he instituted a uh, seemingly impossible plan through this guy named Abraham where he would reclaim the world, all of us, back to him for his glory. So if you fast forward around 600 years, we get to a guy named Moses. And Moses has just led about 2 million of God's people out of Egypt and toward the promised land. And now we're on the mountain. And God has just given Moses the first set of instructions he has for Israel. We call them the Ten Commandments. And as Israel has gotten the Ten Commandments, at the very moment that is happening, they are at the base of the mountain making a golden calf idol. Do you see a problem with that? And God is understandably angry, and his initial reaction is to suggest throwing out the nation of Israel and starting over with Moses. And Moses responds, now this is the Colin James Bible, not the King James, I'm paraphrasing here, all right? My middle name is James, if you didn't get that, so Colin James, but... (laughs) Moses says to God, you know what, it makes sense to be angry at how the people have acted. They, they have done the exact opposite of what you told them to do. It would make sense. You are right to be angry at them, but don't forget the promise that you made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, where you said that you would bring them into the land. So yes, it makes sense to hold them accountable, but it also makes sense to keep your promise. And that's what God does. Is he keeps his promise to Israel. 
And Moses then asked God to, ex- to ex- be able to experience him on a personal level. And God obliges. And here is how God describes himself. This is where we are right now. He is passing before Moses, and he says this. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. I have a few goals here for the rest of the time that we have tonight. First, I want you to know God as he describes himself. I want you to feel like that God is the kind of God that you want to serve. Even if you've been serving him your whole life, that he is the kind of God that you want to get to know even better than you do today. And then I want you to take the idea that you had of God when you walked in here tonight. I want you to take the way that God presents himself and compare those two and see if there's any way that your idea of who God is needs to be adjusted in light of how he describes himself. How's that sound? Good? All right, let's dig in. Verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. We got to stop there for a second. If you're reading in English, the word Lord probably looks a little different than any of the other words there on your page, right? The vast majority of English translations, just about everyone you can find, have all the letters of Lord capitalized. So you might see that there, capital O, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that, that is the translator signaling to you that this verse in Hebrew is using God's name. Did you know that God has a name? Did you know that's not God? (laughs) You know, God is not a name. It's actually a title. It's just like how Christ isn't a name, it's a title. It's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. <laughs> it's actually Jesus the Christ, uh, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is the Greek, it's the English version of a Greek version of a Hebrew word. <laughs> it means Messiah, it means anointed one. He's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one of God. We do that a lot in English. We take Hebrew words and we turn them into uh, proper nouns. They're common nouns. Not proper names, but then we turn them into proper names. We did it with Christ. We do it with God. Uh, we, we did it with Satan, too. You realize Satan is not the name of our enemy? It's actually the Satan. It's a title. Same thing goes for Lucifer, too. Some of you are going, yeah, it's not Satan, it's Lucifer. No, it's not. <laughs> Lucifer is also a title. It means light bearer. It's not a name. That one's really funky. You should study that one sometime. That is English from Latin, not even from Greek or Hebrew. So that one gets really funky, thanks to some people who translated the Bible like 300 years before the King James was translated. Um, But yeah, we do that a lot. So God is not God's name. Does anyone know what God's name is? Yahweh. Some people think it's Jehovah. You'll hear some preachers say that. That is not technically correct. Um, Jehovah is a later Hebrew way to refer to God that takes the consonants from Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H, and the vowels from the Hebrew word for Lord, 
which is Adonai. Some of you may recognize that word, Adonai. So they take the YHWH from, Lord, uh, from Yahweh and the AOI from Adonai, and they make Yahuwah, or Yehoah, which we then anglicize to Jehovah. So if you're going to search the Hebrew Bible, you're never going to find the word Jehovah. It's not in there. It's technically a made-up word. It's a combination of God's name and the word for Lord. His name is Yahweh. Now, you will find it in some English versions, including the King James. Um, so there are certain versions that occasionally and very inconsistently translate um, this word Yahweh, uh, this name Yahweh. They don't always know what to do with it. Sometimes they call it Lord. Sometimes they translate it Jehovah. Uh, so it's not wrong to say. So if I hear you saying Jehovah or calling God, God instead of Yahweh, I'm not going to magically appear and slap you with a Bible dictionary. It's okay. Uh, but I'm just saying it's not necessarily the most grammatically accurate. Uh, so if you want to be the most accurate, God, the name of the God that you and I worship is Yahweh. So Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is God, merciful. That word merciful here has probably a different connotation than you might think of. So as we look at these words, I want you to take the English meanings that you have in your head, put them in, you know, organize them, categorize them, alphabetize them, put them in a nice little folder, push it off to the side. <laughs> because that is probably not what the word actually means. And we're going to get into that here tonight. So merciful has the idea of sympathetic or compassionate. It means to be moved by, to take action towards someone dealing with hardship. It's like, imagine if you're driving down the road, and as you're driving, you see a car accident. As you're going by, you go, oh, man, I, I hope those people are okay. But what if as you drove by, you saw that it was your friend's car? All of a sudden, you'd be like slamming on the brakes, so you'd be doing a U-turn on the highway, going back, trying to see, are they okay? That is being sympathetic. That is being compassionate. That is saying, I see somebody hurting, and I care. I want to get involved. I want to make sure that they are okay. It's not just looking at a sufferer from a distance and going, man, I hope they're okay. It's actually getting involved, getting your hands dirty, because you don't want to see that person hurt. So let me ask you, do you think of God that way? Now, before you say yes... I did not say, do you know that God is supposed to be this way? I did not say, can you quote me verses that say God is this way? I didn't say, can you sing a children's song that says God is this way? Have you personally experienced God as being sympathetic and compassionate to you? You say, I'm a Christian. I know, I'm still asking you that question. Because <laughs> I'm not just talking for salvation, I'm talking about in your life every day. Do you personally, based on the experiences you've had, apart from the good churchy answer you know you're supposed to give, believe that God is someone who truly does not want to see you hurting? Do you see him as someone who gets up close and personal in times when you're struggling, when you're struggling financially? How about physically? How about emotionally? How about spiritually? When you feel like Church hurts more than it helps. When you feel like God's not speaking and you don't even want to pick up a Bible because you've been hurt by the way people have used it. Do you know that he's sympathetic to your struggles even then? And he's not angry with you? He steps in, he's compassionate. You know, when I was in college, one of the many debates we would have, and man, did we have debates. <laughs> we lived for debates. 
one of the big debates we would have was whether, what, what God's most predominant characteristic is. And we usually found one of two sides. You had the people who said God is primarily holy and the people who said God is primarily love. And then you had a few wise guys who would try to say he's primarily both and then we'd take him out back and stone him. <laughs> the thing that I've noticed though is that our circles really like to focus on the God is holy part. We like to make sure that we are doctrinally accurate. And we say that God's love, but we say that the, holy, the love stems out of the holiness and we have our nice little theology answers for it. And I get it, there is a place for that kind of debate. But what really interests me about this passage is that this is the first time in the entire Bible that God gets to describe himself. In fact, it is the first time in the entire Bible that God is described. When there is a verse that the sole purpose of its existing is to tell you what God is like. You can infer it from other stories, you can get some ideas of his attributes, but this is the first time in the entire Bible narrative where God's character is described. And the very first word God uses to describe himself, sympathetic. You know, it's kind of like when you have a job interview and you have to describe yourself in just a few words, right? I hate those things. Like, you, you, you can have the whole thing planned out, and then as soon as you're in there, you just lose everything on the spot. But well, you're, like, trying to fashion every word exactly, right? I want to make sure I only have one shot to present my best self forward. This is God's one shot, if you will, to present his best self, if you can put it that way, uh, in, in, as uh, respectfully as I can put that. This is God's one shot to say, you have seen the gods of Egypt. You have, you're seeing the gods of Canaan. This is what I'm like as God. So up against all those other gods, this is God's pitch, if you will, to be the God of Israel. And the first word that he wants them to see as his defining characteristic is sympathetic, compassionate. What's really fascinating, too, is that this particular Hebrew word has a very feminine connotation. It's, an, it's the adjective form of the Hebrew noun for a womb. I think the idea is that Yahweh is gentle, protective, almost like a mother would be of a baby, right? Didn't Jesus describe himself that way? So I know some of you are thinking, God's a man. He uses masculine terms, yes. But Jesus also said that he would gather his people together like a hen under the wings. Okay, so I'm not preaching heresy here. I'm in the same vein Jesus is. Can you picture a protective mother of her baby, where she would uh, maybe like cradle the child and, and put herself in harm's way before letting the child get hurt. That's how God is with you. He would rather put himself in harm's way before seeing you get hurt. Kind of sounds like what would send someone to a cross for you, doesn't it? God is sympathetic toward whatever situation you are in tonight. Let's look at the next word, what the King James calls gracious. I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew here tonight. You didn't know you were signing up for a Hebrew class when you came in, but you are. In Hebrew, gracious comes from the root word ken. Can you say that with me? Ken. <laughs> Got a couple people trying it. It's like you're saying the word for a female chicken, a hen, but you clear your throat when you start to say it. So it's ken. I, I wish you could be up here with me. I love watching people <laughs> when I tell them to say that. Because <laughs> usually what happens is the, the women in the church are the best ones to watch when you say a word like that. Because especially some of the older ones, they, it's like, that's so undignified. I'm not clearing my... 
Be thankful you speak English, not Hebrew. There are a lot of words that sound like that. <laughs> that word, ken, it has the idea of favor. Something full of ken makes the viewer or the listener respond with favor. It brings favor from the viewer or listener. That's all right in the back row there. We can stop. <laughs> I see you, Rich. The focus then isn't just on the beauty or elegance of the object, but it's about how the beauty or charm of that object is perceived in the eyes of the observer. It puts you in a good mood. Most of you are well aware that I am a card-carrying Star Wars nerd. So I wanted to show you guys tonight. I have with me a vintage 1977 Kenner Star Wars Stormtrooper action figure. This was, one of, this was the seventh Star Wars action figure ever made. Uh, if this figure were to be mint condition, carded in the box, uh, we call them carded because when they were in the box they had a cardboard card and then a little plastic bubble around the figure. So if it was to be carded in mint condition, it would be worth somewhere around $1,300 today. Sold for two bucks in 1977. $1,300 today. Now, you can tell this guy's not in the box. <laughs> And if you were to get a little bit closer up, you'd see he's uh, yellowed. He's got some uh, coloring on there. Now, the, um, you can see that his uh, joints are a little loose from being played with. Got a little wear and tear. This guy is worth about five bucks. <laughs> but if someone were to come up to me and they were to hand me a free, vintage, carded 1977 Kenner Stormtrooper mint condition in the box, I'd still like this one more. If they were to tell me, I'll give you 1,300 bucks for this one, I'd say, nope. Some of you are going, this kid is crazy. If you didn't know that already, there's nothing we can do here, all right? You should have figured that out by now. Why, why wouldn't I trade this beat up old toy for one worth 260 times more? This one was my dad's. He used to hang it from the rearview mirror of his 1972 Toyota, so hence the yellowing on it, so thank you, Dad. <laughs> this action figure has ken to me. A collector would look at it and say it's worthless, maybe five bucks. But I look on it with favor. When I see this figure, I don't see an almost 50-year-old beat-up toy. I see a link between me and my dad. Now listen to me now, that's how God sees you. You might feel like you're weathered, beat up, out of the box, worth five bucks. But God sees you like your mint condition carded in the box. <laughs> he looks at you and he feels can, favor. Too often in our circles we've created a theology that pictures an angry God who is ready to strike you down. We get fed up with ourselves over our bad habits, our addictions, our poor choices that we struggle with over and over and over and over again. And we think, if I'm this ticked off at myself, God must be even more so. But my friend, if you are God's child, can I please just like cut through all of those thoughts for a second and suggest that maybe, just maybe, God doesn't hate you? Maybe, just maybe, he doesn't see you as a failure and a poor excuse for a Christian if only everyone else knew what I knew. Maybe, you know what? No, definitely. He looks on you, not just with sympathy, 
but with favor. Continuing on, we have a good old-fashioned Middle English word, long-suffering. Anyone use long-suffering in a conversation in the last week? <laughs> it is a, uh, it's a weird word. It's a relatively self-explanatory word when you think about it. It means to suffer long. Um, but that still doesn't help us because today we only use suffer in the sense of pain. In 1611, it had the idea of being patient, of waiting. Somebody who waits long, somebody who's patient, someone who's slow to get angry. Now, if you think that word is unique, wait until you learn the Hebrew word. It's even cooler. In Hebrew, there is no one specific word to describe when a person is angry, at least not in the way that we have in English. Uh, there are three ways in Hebrew that you can say someone is angry. The first one is you can say that they are hot. Now, before you go, they're not like that, all right? But you can say they're hot. You can say their nose, like nose. Or you can put the two together and say they're hot of nose. Now, when you think about that one for a second, that makes sense. Because when you get really angry, face turns red, get hot right about here, hot of nose, somebody who's angry. So somebody who was really quick to get angry, the Bible would call someone with a short nose. In English, we'd say they have a short fuse. It doesn't take much to set them off. You do anything, and they're going to fly off the cuff at you. So in Hebrew, to say that someone is patient you say they're long of nose. Or if we can make it English, long fuse. It's going to take a while from the time you set it off to the time that it blows up. It's not an immediate reaction. They're, they're patient. They're long of nose. Pause with me for a second here. Is that how you think of God? I don't mean does he have a long nose physically like Pinocchio, but I mean someone who's patient. Often we imagine God as someone who's quick to fly off the cuff. And there is in the Bible that God gets angry at sin. I do not want to discount that. But if you actually read some of these stories, he is incredibly patient. Sometimes we just focus on the verses where he is uh, laying down the law on sin, if you will. But we miss the chapters upon chapters upon chapters before that where he gave the people chance after chance after chance after chance. We imagine God is so quick to fly off the cuff, but if you let him describe himself, he says he's actually really slow to get angry. And don't forget, this is in the first half of your Bible. This is the God of the Old Testament as well as the New. He has a long nose, a long fuse. Not a short fuse, a long fuse. He's patient, even when you feel like you are consistently falling short of where you're supposed to be. God's not up there in heaven tapping his fingers, going, why, oh, why haven't they figured it out yet? No, he's patient. He's also abundant in goodness. Now, that's not the normal word for goodness. So I'm going to teach you one more Hebrew word here tonight. You ready? It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's that same starting sound. I told you a lot of words sound like that. But chesed. And it means good. Well, here it's translated goodness. But you'll find a, a large variety of translations for this word, even across King James. Uh, and the reason is there is no one direct word-for-word word English word to match this word. Uh, it takes like 10 words in English to match this one word in Hebrew. Um, it has the idea of a loyal love based on a covenant relationship. In other words, if you have chosen to follow Yahweh, he abounds in loyal love to you that cannot and will not change no matter what. 
It's not talking about if you say, uh, I love this movie, or I love this song, or I lo and then you know, next month you've got a new favorite song or movie, or book, or whatever it is. You know, I love this pizza place, you find a better pizza place next month. This is more like if you say you love Philly sports teams, because <laughs> they don't give you a reason to, and you're just consistent with it over time, even when they consistently mess up. That's kind of what God's love for us is like, <laughs> being a Philly sports fan. God's chesed is his loyal love. Evidence to people he makes a covenant with. If you are a Christian, you are a member of the new covenant in Jesus. God sees you in the light of his chesed, his loyal love. I love how one author described God's chesed. He said, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. God's love is overwhelming. It's never-ending. And lastly, he is abundant in truth. That word truth has more the idea of trustworthiness. I work a, a mortgage-related job uh, where I work with condominiums, and every day I have to reach out to these management companies that run the condominiums. I have to get a bunch of documents from them. Um, and I found pretty quickly that a lot of these condominiums all across the country use the same management companies. And I learned really fast that certain ones are better than others. <laughs> I can tell just by the name of it, nine out of 10 times, they have fought us. Like, I'm going to need an extra cup of coffee. I am going to probably need anger management lessons after today. Like, this is not going to end in a good day. This is not going to be a good day. And then there are other ones where I see the name, and right off the bat, I know, cool, they're going to help me. I'm going to get the stuff in early. It's going to be a good day. I'm going to have this finished before lunch. Just based on the consistency uh, of their, just by the name alone, I'm able to say, this is how my experience with them is going to be. That's the way God is. By looking at his character, by looking at, uh, this, this is the beauty of the Bible, by looking at the stories that we have in the Bible, you are able to see his consistency across time. And you can look at just the name of God and say, I can trust that. He has come through every single time. You can look at stories of people like David, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, uh, Esther, fill in the blank with whoever you want and say, if God didn't give up on them, I don't think he's about to change his character in my situation. The same miracle-working God of the Bible is the same God that we serve today. He is firm ground on which to stand. And then I want to take just a couple minutes here and look at that next verse that followed it, because that verse is really cool. That gives us the warm fuzzies. And then we look at verse 7, and the first half keeps up the warm fuzzies, and then the second half we start to get a little nervous with. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yeah! And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And all God's people said, <laughs> what in the world did I just read? <laughs> right? That doesn't seem to go together. Oh, but it does. See, as you study it out, Remember, that word that I just taught you a second ago, chesed, that loyal covenant love, I wasn't just teaching you that to clear your throat. That's the word mercy here. The word that was translated goodness in verse 6 is the word translated mercy in verse 7. He keeps, he observes, he holds on to, he gives loyal covenant love to thousands forgives iniquity, transgression, sin. Uh, those words are kind of parallel, but they also have different meanings. That's a really fun study we should do sometime. He'll by no means clear 
Now, do you guys notice anything strange there? If you're reading that, anything strange about those next couple of words? He'll by no means clear. There's a good chance if you're looking, especially if you're reading King James, that those words are italicized. If you come across an italicized word, there are a few versions that do it. King James was the most prominent. Um, if you come across an italicized word, that is not a word that is in the original language. And the reason the translators put it in there is because sometimes languages don't match up one for one. If any of you guys ever took high school Spanish or anything like that, you ever run into a situation where you couldn't exactly translate one for one? Uh, <laughs> I see Mrs. Seltzer's nodding and go, oh yeah. Um, if I were just basic Spanish here, if I were to say, me amo Colin, we would say, my name is Colin. But is that what I said? Mm -mm. I said, I call myself Colin. But we wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go up to Aaron afterward and say, hey, I call myself Colin. <laughs> He'd go, okay, you really need help. But we translate as, my name is Colin, because that's the general idea. It, it works. But sometimes languages aren't one for one, and there are other examples we could give of that happens in every language. So when you see the italicized words, that's the translator saying, it didn't match completely. Here's our best fit to make it work in English. Really, it's the, um, it literally would say, he'll by no means um, pass over, is kind of the idea. Like, he's not going to let sin go unnoticed. He's keeping a record uh, for, for, um, for the future. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children. Now, we only have the moment to, to focus on this, so I'll just say there are some people who have looked at this verse and similar ones. There are a couple others like it in the Torah. And they think that that has the idea of a generational curse. In other words, um, my parents messed up on something, and so God's holding me accountable too. That is not what this means. That is not in the Bible. Uh, there are other verses that I could point you to where it says that God holds everyone accountable for their own actions. And he does not punish you for something that someone else in your family did. This is not, if you look at it, you'll notice that it's not a command. It's a warning. It's put in the phrase of a statement. God is not the one who punishes you for the actions of your parents, but can the actions of your parents affect you? If you have um, a mom who drinks while she's pregnant, a dad who smokes all the time in the house, uh, or parents who argue all the time in front of their kids, or fill in the blank with whatever, whatever you do, commit a crime and you go to jail, does that affect your kids, right? So everything that you do can have an effect on the next generation. So what God is doing here is he is warning them saying, be careful, it is possible to make the same mistakes your parents did. Visiting, that part of the problem is that we have that word visiting and we're like, what in the world does that mean? It has the idea of inspecting actually. It has the idea of coming in for like if your manager, uh, your big, big level boss comes in for a visit at your job and inspects what's going on. God is going to inspect what you do and say, be careful. This could affect the next generation. Unto the third and the fourth, and you'll notice that last word's italicized as well. Generation is not there. And I think it's important that we read this without that word generation there. Here's why. If, if you look at that number at the end of the verse, third and fourth, look back at the beginning of verse seven. Who does God keep mercy for? Thousands. That's a contrast. 
however you want to read verse 7, however it sits uncomfortably with you that God uh, keeps track of sin, because that's not a comfortable thought. Realize that the focus is he is saying, at most, third and fourth generation is when I'm going to let things go. But my mercy, that's for thousands of generations. Sometimes we read it like it's thousands of people, but those are parallel thoughts. Thousands of, if you have it as a third and fourth generation, thousands of generations. Another interesting study, I'll just throw this out for the couple of people who'll do this. Start looking through Genesis for the number of times that the third or the fourth generation is the one that gets really far from God and he raises up a deliverer in that fourth generation. That's a fun study. That is the most popular, unpopular verse in the Bible. Let me ask you, how well did your idea of God match up with how he described himself? How well did your experience with God in church, with other Christians, uh, with the preachers that you hear on the radio or on YouTube, or how'd that match up with how God described himself? Yeah, I want to challenge you guys this week. Take some time, maybe even tonight, grab a piece of paper, draw a line right down the center of it. And on the left-hand column, write down how you have experienced God. Not what you think he's supposed to be like, not uh, the nice Sunday school answers that you know you're supposed to get, but based on church experiences, experiences with other Christians, how you've read the Bible, just life in general, how you view God. Be raw, be honest. No one else has to read it. And then on the right column, write down these attributes from tonight's study. Yahweh is sympathetic. He finds favor in you. He's patient. He abounds in loyal love. He abounds in trustworthiness. And I would challenge you to look at those two lists and say, what do I need to do to get from this side to this side? Where do I need to change my perception of God to match up with how he describes himself? What would it take to get me thinking of God that way? What would it be like to serve a God that isn't up in heaven angrily waiting for me to mess up again? But a, a God who is sympathetic, who finds favor in you, who's patient, who's uh, abounding in loyal love, who's trustworthy. But let's also add in verse 7, he does not take sin lightly. But just as he makes sure to the third and the fourth generation sin is dealt with, he will make sure that his covenant loyal love is shown for thousands upon, of generations. That, my friends, is the God that you serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am humbled by this description of yourself as I compare it to how I am often tempted in my own mind to portray you. And Father, on behalf of this church, we lift up the ways, the wrong ways that we have often thought of you, whether uh, by some show that we've watched, some words that somebody has said, some way that we thought you were supposed to be that was not accurate. Father, we lift that up and we ask that you would take that and replace it in our hearts and our minds with who you really are. And I pray that you would instill in each of us a, a love for you and a desire to get to know you more as you have presented yourself because as you say in your word, you loved us first. 
Father, I pray that uh, we would uh, become enamored with that, that this week these thoughts would continue uh, to roll over in our minds as we chew on the kind of God that you are, and then that we would be able to take that and share it with others in our circle as well. We thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you can give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.